worship you tonight. And as we come, Lord, to receive your word, open our hearts, God. Help us to hear what you have to say to us. Take these words, Lord, and by your Holy Spirit, impress them upon us, God. May they transform us to life that you have come to give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, church. Take a seat. I just have a little community service announcement of my own tonight. Can we just have the house lights up a little bit, please? Um, Immerse is happening again this year. 2020 will be the 10th year Immerse has run. I'm feeling a bit old. And I did want to just show you the caliber of people who have been through Immerse over the last 10 years. So if you have done Immerse, please stand up now. Don't be shy. Look at that. Great. And if you are 18 to 21 and have some free time over the uni break, starting, I think, on the 8th of January, um, we would love you to be a part of Immerse. Grab one of those people, ask them what it's all about, and um, send me an email or sign up at the office. That would be great. We are in a series in Philippians 2, opening up the scripture. Matt challenged us last week on what humility looks like, what humility is, what it means to live a life of humility. And, and I was drawn, I guess, challenged by these words of do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Value others above yourself. Don't look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. How did you go this week? How did you go exercising, practicing humility? In our human nature, it's not easy or natural to be humble. We don't actually really like giving up what we think we deserve or what we have earned. And it's not easy for us to see how another person might be right and we might be wrong. It's not easy. It's not part of our human nature to want good things for other people at the cost of ourselves, our own desires and needs. Was there a moment in your week this week where you thought... Why am I always the one who unpacks the dishwasher? These are the big issues we're talking about here with humility. Was there a moment where you felt badly or thought badly about someone who didn't let you merge in traffic? Was there a moment where you got angry or frustrated because you didn't have control of the TV remote and couldn't watch what you wanted? Oh, bit of confession up the back there. And Paul is going, I, I want you to get this. Paul is urging us, encouraging us, spurring us on to understand what humility really is. Earlier this year, I was doing a lesson. I love my RI class on a Friday morning. I learned so much from nine-year-olds 
Jesus told us that the kingdom of God belongs to little children and they have an amazing way of seeing God and seeing his word. And I wrote the word humility up on the board and I was really actually surprised that they had no idea what humility was. No idea. In my Google searching this week, um, procrastinating probably is a better way to say that, I came across this graph um, which tables the use of humility um, in the literature that is around. And you can see since the 1800s that humility has actually been in a significant downtrend. This isn't a word that our society is too familiar with anymore. We don't really get what humility is. And the people Paul was writing to were actually in the same position as we are. Humility was a foreign thing. And so as Paul is writing in this chapter, he, he wants us to really unpack it, dig deep into it, understand what, what humility is all about. And so following on from those verses we looked at last week in chapter two, we read these verses from five to eight. Read them along with me. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This passage, these verses are arguably the most theologically studied passages in all of scripture. I remember digging into these verses in a theology class at Bible college quite a few years ago now, and hearing words like incarnation, pre-existent, kenosis, and thinking to myself, I've been a Christian for a pretty long time, and I just believed that Jesus was God and came to earth. Not realizing, actually totally oblivious to the theological wrestling and debating that has happened for centuries over these very verses as scholars have sought to interpret and understand and explain how God could become a man. These verses describe for us the incarnation of Christ and it is a mystery. And I think in trying to understand this mystery of God becoming man, we could easily miss that Paul's main point here is to show us the humility that Jesus demonstrated for us. If we unpack the words and phrases of these verses, we start with Jesus being in the form of God. The word for form in the original translation is a word that means that Jesus is the true and exact nature of God, the exact representation of who God is, possessing all the characteristics and qualities of God himself. 
Jesus is pre-existent. Before time began, Jesus is. He existed with God in the creation of the world. Other scriptures support these statements. Jesus himself said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8 says, In Jesus all things were created, things on heaven, sorry. In Jesus, he's the one through whom all things came. And in Colossians, it says all things were created through him. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. This is Jesus. There are people who would argue with you today that Jesus isn't God. But scripture points us to this as truth. And Paul wants us to know this truth before we wrap our heads around what happens next in this passage. Jesus is God, and yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In many ways, this actually affirms his godness, doesn't it? He wasn't striving to prove himself with God, desperately holding on to his status as God, his value and worth in heaven. He didn't see his status as God as um, something to be exploited for his own benefit or used to his own advantage. This would have been mind-blowing for Paul's audience. You know, their view of God in a Greco-Roman culture, if you've ever read anything about the Greek gods, knew that they, were, they had powers, but they used them to their own advantage. They used them to subdue others and trick each other. They were competitive beings, bickering and fighting. People who followed these gods were supposed to work out how to please them and appease them to live life. The Romans believed that Caesar was God. They worshipped and revered and served this man as a god. He had absolute power and authority over his subjects, and he used that to his own advantage, his own exploitation, his own execution of his every whim. Even the Jews had a picture of them, a misunderstanding of this absolute power. They didn't think King Herod was a god, but he was their king who heard a rumor that a baby had been born that might threaten his place on the throne. And so he ordered every baby to be killed. Talk about using power and authority for your own advantage. This is what power looked like in this culture. If you had it, you had every right to use it at the expense of those around you. And imagine living in this day when Paul says, Jesus was so secure in his position of authority and power that he actually gives it up. Here Jesus redefines power and authority. He doesn't wield it in a way that exploits others or advantages himself. 
but rather absolute power means being able to lay it down. Give it up for the benefit of others, for the interests of others, for the concern of others. Just imagine hearing that that was what God was like, a self-giving God. To Paul's audience, this is stunning. Jesus empties himself. He lets go of his right to the glories of deity and willingly chooses to take on the form of a servant, born into the likeness of men. Paul is highlighting the contrast from God with absolute power and authority to servant, one who has no rights, who takes instruction, whose whole lot in life is to serve others. This picture of humility is not just that Jesus came into a human body. He was born. There is nothing more leveling in society than thinking of every single person at one point in their life needing to have their nose wiped and their nappy changed. And Jesus was no different. It would have been humbling enough for God to come as a man, maybe even an emperor with power and influence. But no, he was born a baby into a poor family of no status, into a nation of people who were actually enslaved by Rome. Jesus empties himself of his heavenly position and life in the Trinity into human flesh and earthly mortality. Paul isn't saying that Jesus became less God in doing that. He didn't give up being God when he took on human flesh. Jesus is fully God and fully man. This is the mystery of incarnation. He came and lived the visible image of God to us. And we read about it. We see his godly power and authority throughout his life on earth. There were authority in, his, in the words that he spoke. He had authority over creation. He had authority over sickness and death. And yet not once did he use his authority to push his own cause or benefit himself? And in fact, in the moment that he faced his death, Peter, one of his followers, Jesus is about to get arrested. And Peter, one of his followers, sees these soldiers come and he went, Jesus, now is the time to use your power. Now's the time. Here's my sword. I'll, get, I'll start the way. Slice someone's ear off. And Jesus went, no, that is not my way. And he took that ear, the ear of his enemy, and healed it. And then he willingly went with his captors. This is humility, not grasping after rights, not demanding respect, not expecting others to acknowledge position or entitlement. 
but being able to willingly let it go to serve others. And just when we think we understand what this picture of humility is, Paul takes it to a whole nother level when he says that Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross. With that final statement, Paul takes humility and turns it into humiliation. Paul does not want us to miss seeing the cost of love, the extent and lengths to which love will go. You know, the cross over time has come to be this beautiful, adored symbol. I found this beautiful picture of the cross. Caleb, if you could put it up on the screen. Almost romantic there. This symbol of the cross. We wear it as jewelry. We hold it up in church. We stamp it on Bibles and books. But in Roman times, the cross was viewed very differently. Crucifixion was the ultimate indignity, one of the most horrible fates that humans could ever devise. It was the death of choice in Roman times reserved for the lowest in society, only for slaves and rebels. It was a public statement that the one being crucified was beyond contempt. The excruciating physical pain was magnified by the degradation and humiliation of being on that cross. No other form of death, no matter how prolonged or physically agonizing, could match crucifixion for its absolute destruction of the human body. The very word cross was an obscenity that couldn't be uttered in polite conversation. It was the stuff nightmares were made of. And we think it's, it's just offensive to us now, but it was offensive in the day. Even writers of the time period stated that the cross was a most shameful form of death. The cross was a most cruel and terrifying penalty. The people Paul is writing to share this view that the cross is unspeakable. I will never forget seeing the passion of the Christ in the movie cinema. I cried all the way through it and I have never been able to watch it again. The torture and the cruelty that Jesus went through is unimaginable. And it wasn't exaggerated. Nobody in the world that Paul was writing to would have been able to hear that word cross without feeling instinctively the horror and the shame of it. The cross literally represented the lowest place humans could go. The Jews believed that anyone crucified died under a curse of God. It was so offensive to consider that this was the way Jesus died, that some groups of early Christians tried to downplay it. They tried to leave it out of the gospel story. 
Some said that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. It just didn't make sense that this is the death God would go through. It is no surprise then that Paul would say the message of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Why would God allow himself to be humiliated like that? Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate counterpoint to his divine majesty. In these few verses, Paul wants us to appreciate that Jesus came from the most elevated level in the universe. And in humility, emptied himself of everything. In obedience to the Father, he walks to the absolute lowest place on earth. At the cross, God himself endures the worst of the worst humiliation and shame, suffering and pain. There is absolutely nothing more that God could give. He gives it all. And this is the center of our gospel. Can you believe this is good news? Jesus with arms outstretched in obedience and total surrender gives himself in love for us. In this act of humility, he bears and removes the weight of sin and death because relationship with us is so important to him. Jesus didn't endure the cross despite being God, but he went there because he is God. In these few words, Paul captures for us the very heart of God. This is who God is, not a power-hungry, self-seeking, self-serving God but a God who in selfless devotion expresses his divinity and love. The cross screams out, this is divine love that God gave for you and for me. The cross is the moment where heaven intersects earth. God reveals to humanity the essence of his character, his heart and his nature, and he does it by stopping at nothing to pour out his love for us. In that moment where Jesus hangs on that cross, he is seemingly stripped of absolutely everything, but the power of heaven is revealed, unveiled. Love and forgiveness and grace and life are there. There for anyone who will receive it.
in that heaven meets earth moment, God's plan to renew and restore and redeem has come. Sin and death are defeated. Our worship and our purpose are restored. We've been given life in Jesus at that cross. Soak in that truth tonight. Hear it again tonight. Some of you are yet to experience the love that God has poured out for you as he hung there on that cross. Tonight is your night. When my kids were little, we used to play this game where I would say, how much do I love you? And they were just toddlers. They'd be embarrassed if I kind of told you this story, so don't pay out on them too much. But I'd go, how much do I love you? And they would go, this much. And I'd go, no, not that much. And then they'd go, oh, this much, with their little chubby arms. And I'd go, no, not that much. And then I would take their arms and stretch them as wide as they could go and say, I love you this much. And as I look at the cross, as I think about what that represents, I see my heavenly Father in Jesus saying, this is how much I love you. Paul lays out for us the most incredible example of humility. He challenges us to have the mind of Christ the mind that took Jesus to the cross, the mind that empties himself of his rights and his power and takes him to that point of pouring himself out for those around, for those he loves. And he challenges, Paul challenges us to have this mind in our relationships, in our interactions with others, in our attitudes, in our words, in our actions to think about what it means to follow Jesus in this example of humility and love in everything we do. And humility like this makes a difference. When heaven intersects earth in these moments, it makes a difference. In the third century under the Roman emperor Diocletian, there was a vicious and violent persecution of Christians. But far from being stamped out, the church grew at such a rate that the Roman Empire was forced to admit defeat. Nobody had known that people could live like that or face death like that. This was something new. They recognised the Jesus followers as a strange new presence in their midst, neither a religion or a political power, but a whole new kind of life a new way of being human. You know, throughout the ages, people have intentionally sought to live like the incarnated Christ. You might have heard of St. Francis of Assisi in the 13th century, who gave up his family wealth and inheritance and lived a life of simplicity and poverty. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China in the mid-1800s. And he couldn't work out why he wasn't connecting and relating to these people living in his Western way among them. 
And so we said, actually, I have to to be like them to reach them with the gospel. And he started eating what they ate and living what they ate and wearing what they ate. Mother Teresa embraced a life of poverty amongst the poor in Calcutta to live and love like Jesus did. I was just listening to some guy whose name escapes me on Right Now Media, just a wealth of information there, Um, taking, and he was talking about this movement of people right now, right at this moment, who are intentionally leaving their comfortable rich suburbs and going to live in the poorest places in their city to be Jesus. To follow Jesus' incarnational ministry of giving up their rights and possessions and just going to love people like Jesus came to love us. Is that what obedience in humility looks like for all of us? You know, there's a frustration as I teach R.I. and talk about Jesus. And quite often, one of these little kids will pipe up and go, well, why doesn't Jesus just come now? I want to see Jesus. Where is he now? And you know, this happened just last week. And I just felt like God said, I'm actually here. I'm actually incarnated in in every single one of my followers. My Holy Spirit lives in my people. And I've placed my people in families and universities, in schools and in workplaces, on buses and trains, in coffee shops and shopping centres. He said, Jesus is here as nurses and OTs as managers and engineers and teachers, as mums and dads, as siblings, uncles and aunties, grandparents, neighbours. Every time one of his followers act in humility and love, every time kindness is poured out, every time forgiveness and grace is shown, Heaven meets earth and Jesus is visible to the world. To live our lives worthy of the gospel is a calling to love like Jesus loves. Sometimes it will be costly. Sometimes we will be giving up our rights and what seems fair. Sometimes it may even be degrading and humiliating. But in every act of humility and love, heaven meets earth and God's kingdom grows there. Imitate Christ. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says, as imitators of God, dearly loved Children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. As imitators of God, dearly beloved children, walk in love. You know, I don't think we can live in humility without knowing our identity in Christ. We talked about Jesus being in the form of God 
that word, the exact image, the exact representation. In the next verse, when it takes, um, when he takes on the form of man, it's actually a different word for form. That form means outward appearance. Despite what was happening to Jesus and around Jesus, there was never a point where he doubted who he was. He was always God. And he models for us as followers of Jesus and says in this passage that no matter what happens to us as we walk in love, we are dearly loved children. Nothing can change that. If you haven't read Romans 8 recently, read it tonight. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. When we have had that encounter and experience of God's love, when we have received that love for ourselves, nothing can take that away. Nothing and no one. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's not thinking less of me. It is thinking of me less. It doesn't erode our value and worth. Nothing can take that away because of what Jesus has done for us. We are his dearly loved children living in love. And if you are loving people to make yourself feel good, to chalk up some brownie points, to hope that you'll get noticed by other people or feel better about yourself, then you're not loving from a place of love. That is a place of insecurity that drives us to emptiness and pain, actually. Jesus calls us to love out of love, as loved, his beloved. And heaven meets earth when we follow his example of love in humility. I was messaging Lizzie Egan down at Red Frogs this week and she sent me back a photo of the team and one of the things she said um, in her little message back was this, we had some great chats for hours with the schoolies about Jesus, all stemming from the question, why do you do this? You know, who would pay money to go down to the Gold Coast at a time when there are thousands of 17 and 18 year olds who just want to party and drink? Who would go down there with the express intention of cleaning up vomit, helping schoolies out of bad situations, cooking them breakfast, cleaning up their bedrooms, like, who would do that? Jesus would. People following Jesus in humility and love would. And we're blessed by the seeds that have been sown. One girl gave her life to Jesus in that experience of love that she had over lunch. You know, this week we had that seniors high tea, 1,000 old people coming. 12,000 pieces of food. We had to move all these chairs, set up all these tables, move back all the chairs. It was a lot of effort. 
There were rehearsals and practices. It took hundreds of people actually to pull it off. There were people who came in at the end of the morning and just washed up for two hours. Who would do that? People who've experienced love. People who want others to experience love and know the grace and forgiveness and the life and the hope that is in Jesus. This week, we have another opportunity to serve, give up our time, give up our money to go and bless people in need. Christmas lights, another opportunity to love our community. It takes a lot of effort. It's a big cost. But God has called us as his people in this place to show others and to point people to the cross to show them that they are loved by God, to show them the extent of what he did to pour out his love for them. And we, church, have the opportunity to walk in obedience and follow Jesus to love others in humility. Tonight, there are some of you who are feeling like you need that ex a fresh experience of God's love. Maybe for the first time, maybe you've never experienced the love that God has for you. And tonight's your night. Like Addie mentioned, that beautiful moment with God where she just knew his love for her. Some of you are doing the hard yards of loving people. And tonight, I would encourage you to, to come to the cross again. Know that you are God's dearly loved child. To know that you're following his way and he loves you. And others of you just feel that stirring. Maybe there's a situation or a circumstance that God's laid on your heart and you go, yeah, this is tough, but I really do think God's called me to do this. And we don't do it in our own strength, church. We do it by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has given us. And as we do, heaven meets earth in every single one of those places. And love is poured out. Let's pray together. Jesus, this is a holy moment. Just being reminded again tonight of who you are, of all that you've done for us, for the lengths and the depths that you went to, God, to call us your children, to pour out your love, to show us you love us God and we thank you and we're humbled God even as you call us to humility humble to walk in this love humble to be tasked with loving others humbled in your presence God to see other people come into this love and we just ask for your help now God we ask that you would come 
for those longing for that touch of your love tonight, God, I pray that they would know you, that they would feel your presence with them tonight. Encourage those, God, who are walking the tough journey of pouring out their lives for those around them. And help us, God, to take those opportunities to be obedient to your Holy Spirit as you call us to lay our life down, to pour in our love as you did for us. We praise you and thank you tonight in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Just as we stand and worship, we have an opportunity. The team set up the cross there. And this would be an amazing moment just to go to Jesus and thank Him for what He's done for you. Go and ask Him to show you His love. You can stand, you can kneel, you can walk over and then walk back. But just an open response to respond to the Holy Spirit, to respond to Jesus' love for you tonight. Let's stand and worship, church. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He reigns supreme. The passage continues, Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the risen and the exalted one. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank You that you are the King above all kings, that you are the Lord of lords. And to that, tonight, Lord, we come before you and we thank you that you humbled yourself, that you came, stepped in to the mess of human history, into the brokenness and hurt of this world because of your great love for us. And Lord, you have given us an example to follow, Lord, to live humbly, to come before you, Lord, and to seek to serve others as you came to serve us and to serve this world. And so I pray now, Lord, that you will just fill us with your Holy Spirit afresh, Lord, anoint us in this. May we be so aware of your love, Lord, filling us to overflowing that we can live to serve and love others. Help us this week, I pray. Help us in our workplaces. Help us in our family relationships, great God. Help us in our neighborhoods, in our schools, universities, wherever you take us, great God, to live humbly as you have shown us how to live, I pray. And that through this, Lord, people will encounter your love and your grace, that your name, the name is above every other name, will be exalted. That is our prayer. And so, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you, being in relationship with you, Lord, that there is now no obstacle, nothing in the way of us having a relationship with you because of all that you've done for us on the cross. And so we thank you for these truths and we worship you and we praise you and we acknowledge, Lord, that yours is the name above every other name, that you're the King of kings, that you're the Lord of lords and you're worthy of all the praise. Let's put our hands together as we give thanks to our great God. He is worthy. He is worthy. Amen. Amen.
Thanks so much for sharing with us tonight. You can be seated where you are. If you'd like prayer tonight, then do come and grab us down the front. We'd love to pray for you as well. Um, we're going to, in a few moments' time, continue to serve and bless our community as we sort out some of the items for the hamper. You've got a few moments just to chat to one another, connect with each other after the service. And then we're going to put the word out. We're going to help move some of these last few items over to A2 and help sort them over there as well as we seek to bless the community through our hampers. But thank you so much for sharing with us. God bless. We look forward to seeing you next week, 6 o'clock service. Don't forget, next Sunday as we gather together. God bless.